text for today's sermon comes from Exodus chapter 18, verse 21. Exodus chapter 18, 21. And in that passage, we read the following. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. The election sermon may be an unordinary thing today, but it is certainly not unprecedented. Beginning in the 1630s, pastors began preaching election sermons in colonial America, often directly to civil magistrates. The practice continued during and after the American Revolution. The election sermon is a sermon applying the Bible to the political realm. The guiding principle behind this is that God's law word applies to all of life, not simply an individual pietistic realm. So in 1788, for example, Stephen Langdon, a congregational minister who graduated from Harvard with Samuel Adams, preached an election sermon that illustrates this point, that the election sermon is about taking God's word and applying it to all of life. In that sermon, Langdon argues that God's law is relevant to us today, even in how we conduct our civil affairs. Langdon quotes from Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8, which talks about how God has given the nation of Israel righteous rules and laws that no other nation has received, and there'll be a blessing and a light to the world if they follow these laws. And Langdon said this, he said, As to everything excellent in their constitution of government, referring to Israel, except what was peculiar to them as a nation separated to God from the rest of mankind, the Israelites may be considered as a pattern to the world in all ages. And from them we may learn what will exalt our character and what will depress and bring us to ruin. So Langdon says, following God's law word, following the guidelines and precepts laid out in the Bible will exalt us as a nation. Failure to do so will depress and bring us to ruin as a nation. And so this morning, I will do my best to preach an election sermon, looking to God's word, not personal preferences, not political prognostication, not pragmatism, but looking to God's word in order to determine how we ought to conduct ourselves regarding the election of 2020. You can be sure that what I will say will not be agreed upon by all. However, my goal is to be faithful to Scripture, and that is all God ever asks of us. I've entitled this sermon, The Utilitarian Compromise of the American Church. The Utilitarian Compromise of the American Church. I believe that the professing church in America, in large part, has compromised on the principles of God's word regarding civil elections in an effort to bring about good things. Regardless of the desire, they've compromised. In in an effort to avoid what I believe is really the judgment of God, the American church has compromised largely out of fear for what will happen if we do not compromise. However, As God does not bless compromise, I do not believe that this is a path to blessing, 
but rather to more judgment. There is no doubt, as I talk about these topics, that many people have deep-seated, preconceived notions about these things. Unfortunately, many, even within the professing church, are unwilling to hear a view different than their own. They'll shut themselves off as soon as anybody says something different than what they're used to. And so I ask you this morning to consider the case I will make from Scripture. If you're not a Christian this morning, I don't expect you to agree with God's word, though you're required to. And in most sermons, I would take more time to address non-Christians. Today, however, this is a message for the professing church, those who claim to be Christ's followers. If you're not a follower of Christ, I encourage you to listen. And I think at least you can appreciate the desire that I have as a Christian to set things right in the church first before speaking to the non-Christian, to clean our own house, if you will. But for those who claim Christ, I'm primarily speaking to you. This is a challenge to critical thinking. I have modified Cato's appeal in the first anti-federalist letter. He made an appeal for cold deliberation, critical analysis, and candid reflection. And this is my appeal to you, which I've modified. I would ask you to deliberate, think about the biblical case for electing civil rulers with coolness, Analyze it with criticism and reflect on it with candor. If you find, after listening to me speak, that God's word does not direct us how to choose civil leaders, and if you find that our job is not to be faithful to these guidelines, but rather to be political bookies, hedging our bets for the future, then go ahead and embrace the utilitarian mindset of so many in the evangelical church. If, however... You realize that faithfulness to God's word is the only route that will secure to you and your posterity happiness at home and national dignity and respect from abroad. Then reject the utilitarian compromise of the American church with indignation. Better to be faithful under Caesar than unfaithful under Trump. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. First, I'll lay out two principles that apply to this matter. Then I'll make some application and explanation of these principles. And finally, I'll answer a couple common objections on the biblical case I am making. Before I begin with those two principles, let me make a brief comment about something that I believe churches have capitulated and compromised on as well. And that is a matter of 501c3 status. Under the IRS code, if I make any speech or comments that directly or indirectly support or oppose any candidate for elective public office, I have forfeited the right to a 501c3. And I believe churches have accepted this government gag order in order to have tax benefits. The church and her minister should never agree to refrain from applying the Bible to any area of life in return for monetary benefits. I will never, this group will never, if God allows it to continue to exist, will never submit to the government's regulations regarding what is said from the pulpit. So, today we preach an election sermon, or I preach an election sermon, and apply God's word to the civil realm. Two principles. Principle number one. God requires his people to be faithful and obedient, not prognosticators. 
God requires his faithful to his people to be faithful and obedient, not prognosticators. This is a principle of utmost importance that applies to all of life, not least of all elections. Our duty as Christians is to obey God's commands. That is our duty. God never asks us to do anything else. When God has revealed how we ought to conduct ourselves, there is never a reason to wonder what we ought to do. Never. One of the clearest passages in this regard and one of the most encouraging passages in all of Scripture is Deuteronomy 29, 29. And I said Exodus 18, 21 is the sermon text. I'm not spending all my time there. We're jumping around a couple places. And we'll come to Exodus 18, 21 in a moment. But I would say that passage and this one right here in Deuteronomy 29, 29 are the key to this sermon. Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. You see, the Lord knew that the Israelites were going to be tempted to do what their pagan neighbors did. And one of the things that the Canaanites and the surrounding pagan societies did was they would try to discern future outcomes. They would try to discern the future, what would happen to their crops, what would happen to their families, what would happen to their society, what is going to happen in the future, how can we hedge our bets and get the best results. They would try to look at the entrails of animals. They would look to the birds' flight patterns. They would try to appease the gods with various sacrifices. They would do all these things in order to try to figure out the secret things, those things that in their mind the gods had hidden and that it was their job to try to discern what was going to happen and what they could do to influence the future. The Lord knew his people would be tempted to do the same thing, and so he reminds them very clearly here in Deuteronomy 29.29 that the secret things, including the outcome of events in the future of our families, belong to God. What belongs to them, what belongs to God's people and to their children, is what God has revealed, namely his law. Their job and our job as Christians is not to worry about what doesn't belong to us, but to focus on what does. That is obedience to God's revealed law. The thing which belongs to us are those things which are revealed in God's law word. That's it. What doesn't belong to us, those secret things that God knows, the future and the outcome of events, we are not to concern ourselves with when we come to obeying God's word and figuring out how we should act. Now, a failure to understand this concept across all of life is a source of great pain and destruction to individuals, families, and even societies. So let me give you an example of failing to apply this concept before we even talk about the election. Consider a single Christian man thinking about marriage. God's law word clearly reveals that he ought to marry a Christian woman. That's what's revealed. Now, he could say, this Christian man could say, well, there are no godly women around, so I'm going to choose the better of two ungodly women, the lesser of two evils, if you will. In this young man's eyes, he may see no potential future for a family if he follows God's revealed law. God's law says you must marry a believer. He looks around, doesn't see one that he can marry. So he says, well, I have to take matters into my own hands. 
He might think that he has to circumvent God's revealed guidelines in order to achieve a good end, right? A family is a good thing. You might say, might not be the best situation, may not be what God has required of me, but I know in the end God can use it for good, so I'm going to make this decision. Friends, do you realize that this type of thinking is in effect saying, let us sin that good may come. Let us sin, let us go against God's revealed law in order that good may come. What this man is trying to accomplish does not belong to him. Those are the secret things of God. God knows in his secret counsel whether and when this man will be provided with a godly woman to marry. It is not for man to figure out the secret counsel of God. It is for man to obey God's revealed law. You see, God never asks us to sin. Never. Never. He never asks us to circumvent his law in order to achieve a good end. The tendency for man to diverge from obedience to God's law reveals that in that moment, we actually desire something more than faithfulness to God. We desire to take matters into our own hands to achieve a desired result. I have another example for you. Perhaps the most extreme example of this concept would be desiring to keep your life by denying Christ. Here's a great, the greatest example in this sense of when people could reason, well, it's better to deny Christ briefly in order to prevent the sin of murder being committed against me. Or better to deny Christ briefly than to leave my family, my wife, my young children without a father. Surely God wants me to provide and, and stay with my family. Better to deny Christ briefly and therefore be able to continue serving him and preaching the gospel and achieving more good. Friends, I'm so glad God doesn't ask us to figure out when we should obey and when we shouldn't. That is not our job. We can seek to avoid persecution, but never by sinning. We can seek to find a spouse, but never by sinning. If you are ever in a situation where you must choose between following God's word and following some other standard, you never have to think about the consequences for your actions in that context. That is a paralyzing fear that Christians should be free from. Do not fear man. Do not fear what man can do to you. Do not fear what man can do to your family. Do not fear what man can do to your country. Fear God and God alone. Obey his commands and leave the consequences and the results to him. I remember listening to a lecture by Dr. Greg Bonson where he was critiquing this idea of situational ethics, utilitarian ethics. Well, I'm going to I'm going to maybe circumvent God's law here in order to achieve a good end in the future, or the best end. And he gave a case somewhat along the lines of, I'm sure I'm modifying it slightly, but you have, you have men stranded in a boat in the ocean, and the only way they're going to survive is if they kill one of their shipmates and eat his flesh. Barring a miracle from God, they'll all starve to death. What do you do? And I remember Bonson saying something to the effect of, quite simply, better to die than disobey God. Better to die than commit the sin of murder against God. Better to die than sin against God by denying Christ. Better to be faithful to God and die than to sin in order to prolong our lives. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that it's better to obey God than sin and prolong your life? The Bible clearly says we are to be faithful unto death. Revelation 2.10. We are to love God and his word more than life. Psalm 63.3 says your steadfast love is better than life. And God's love, as we talked about last week, is intimately connected to obeying his commands. If we are being consistent with our Christian worldview, we must say that it is better to obey God and die than disobey God and live. You understand this. We must say it is better to obey God and suffer persecution than disobey God and enjoy religious liberty. This is such a clear and simple concept in Scripture. It is the foundation to so many statements we read. To live is Christ. To die is gain. They love not their own lives even unto death. Better to lose the whole world and keep your soul. It's clear and simple in Scripture. Now, it doesn't mean it's easy, but it's clear. Now, I can understand and show compassion for Christians who in their weakness fail to act in a manner consistent with this, who fail to stand for Christ in a moment and acknowledge their weakness and repent of that. What I cannot accept is when someone willingly endorses contravening God's word, contravening something that the Bible says in order to achieve a better end. That is a dangerous thing. We are to be faithful unto death and we are to obey God no matter the consequences. You see, part of the problem with this whole election, and it's not just this year, is that Christians have forgotten what is truly dangerous. God's judgment is far worse than anything man can do. If my obedience to God means that I have to live under a tyrant, so be it. I would rather be faithful to God and live under Nero than be unfaithful to God and live under Mr. Rogers. Do we understand this? Or have we forgotten what matters most? I hope that I have made my point that our job is to obey God. That's it. That is your duty. If obeying God means you and your family are martyred, better to obey God. You understand that in any situation, any situation, God can create an outcome that is totally different from what you thought would happen. Whatever God decides to do is his prerogative. At the last moment, he could change the heart of your persecutors and convert them to Christ. And you could be free. At the last moment, he could provide a way of escape. Or his divine plan and decree and even judgment or discipline for his glory and the good of his people may mean that your faithfulness to God leads to suffering and death for you and even others around you. But if we cannot accept that premise, if we cannot accept that obedience to God may mean suffering and death, then we have failed to accept one of the most basic premises of Christian discipleship. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus said. Obedience to God's will led Jesus to death and suffering. It led to the death and suffering of nearly all of his apostles. If the same happens to us, remember that the servant is not above the master. We are to obey God no matter the consequences. 
We are never to sin that good may come. We must understand that. We are never to sin that good may come. God can turn good from evil. God can take evil and turn it to good. That's his job, not our job. You and I do not have permission to do anything other than obey God's revealed law. God requires us to be faithful and obedient, not prognosticators. We are not to make our decisions based on what we think is going to happen in the future, what we think is going to be best for our family, what we think is going to be best for the world when it comes to clearly revealed guidelines in Scripture. We are to obey God's word, leave the results to him. Keep that principle in mind. Principle number two. If God does in fact reveal to us a standard for voting, we are to follow his standard no matter the outcome. Now, I believe that having established that our job is to be faithful, I hope I've established that regardless of the consequences, we are to be faithful. I want us to now focus on electing civil rulers. So principle two, if God does in fact reveal to us a standard for voting, we are to follow his standards no matter the outcome. Building off principle one, principle two is, is quite simple. If God has revealed to us in his word how we ought to elect civil rulers, then we are to simply follow that standard, regardless of what we may think will be the result. God's job is the consequences. Our job is obedience. Let me first make my case that God does, in fact, reveal to us how to select civil rulers, and then I will move on to some application. Now, listen here. This is the key point, which I will address more uh, in the objections at the end. But some people will say, well, listen, everything you said in principle one may be true, doesn't apply here because God's word does not tell us what standard we should use when voting. Like I said, I'm going to address that more at the end. But first, I will show you now that God does give us a standard. And later I will show the consequences of arguing that does not that God does not give a standard for electing civil rulers. So stick with me here, first of all, as we talk about the standard. And again, this is not uh, about any one president or candidate in 2020. In my lifetime, all the presidential candidates from the two major political parties have failed to meet these qualifications. And every election is the most important election of our lifetime. Every time they say the same thing, our country will fall apart if we don't if we don't compromise here and choose the lesser of two evils. There's always this sensationalism and fear-mongering that this is the election. This is going to determine the future. It's the same thing every four years. And so what I say here isn't specifically targeted at, at President Trump or Vice President Biden, although we will address them, and we would certainly forfeit a 501c3 status in what will be said. This applies to all candidates across the board. So what are the standards that God gives for electing civil rulers? Writing in the 16th century, the authors of the Geneva Bible, men like John Knox, pointed out that there is a passage in the Bible that shows us, quote, what manner of men ought to be chosen to bear office. That passage, of course, is Exodus 18:21, And in that Geneva Bible, it reads as follows. Moreover, provide thou among all the people men of courage. Stop there for a sec. Men of courage. There is something that is missing today. Who has the courage to stand up and say Christ is king, abortion is murder, and homosexual practice is sinful? 
None of these candidates have the courage to do that. So men of courage, fearing God, men dealing truly, hating covetousness, and appoint such over them to be rulers over thousands, rulers over hundreds, rulers over fifties, and rulers over tens. Here you have the standard for electing civil rulers. There it is, right in Scripture, Exodus 18, 21. Preaching that election sermon in 1788, Dr. Stephen Langdon borrowed from the language of this passage and charged the people to follow God's law in casting their votes. He said this, Fix your eyes upon men of good understanding and known honesty, men of knowledge, improved by experience, men who fear God, men who fear God and hate covetousness, who love truth and righteousness and sincerely wish the public welfare. Beware of such as are cunning rather than wise, who prefer their own interest to everything, whose judgment is partial or fickle and whom you would not willingly trust with your own private interests. Let not men openly irreligious and immoral become your legislators. For how can you expect good laws to be made by men who have no fear of God before their eyes and who boldly trample on the authority of his commands? Friends, wicked men do not understand justice. Proverbs 28.5 There is a reason God has required his people to choose God-fearing men, men who love truth and righteousness to be rulers. Any other person will compromise on matters of truth and righteousness. A man who doesn't fear God, a man who doesn't fear God will be able to claim to be pro-life and yet allow babies to be murdered if their father sinned against their mother. That's President Trump for you folks. Touts himself to be the most pro-life president ever and he will allow the murder of children under certain conditions. A man who doesn't fear God will be able to hold up a flag with LGBTs for Trump with a smile on his face. That's President Trump for you. The fear of God is essential in electing civil rulers. Here are a few things Matthew Henry commented on in elaborating on these qualifications in Exodus 18. Matthew Henry said, Select such as fear God, as believe there is a God above them whose eye is upon them, to whom they are accountable and of whose judgment they stand in awe. He said, select conscientious men that dare not do a base thing, though they could do it ever so secretly and securely. The fear of God is that principle which will best fortify a man against all temptations to injustice. Select men of truth whose word one may take and whose fidelity one may rely upon, who would not for a world tell a lie, betray a trust, or act an insidious part. He went on, but I'll stop there for Matthew Henry's words. There is no way these qualifications can be met unless you are a truly converted Christian with the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Only Christians fear God and stand in awe of him. Let us not abandon our biblical worldview when we come to the polls. Let us not forget all of a sudden what it means to fear God and love truth. That is something that can only happen 
when the Spirit of God regenerates a man and changes his heart and gives him a love for the truth and a love for God. Now you understand too that these qualifications do not mean we have to elect a perfect person anymore. And listen, this is an important point because people use this argument all the time. These qualifications do not mean we are electing a perfect person any more than the qualification to marry a Christian is a qualification to marry a perfect person. So if someone says, well, yeah, I see those things there in Scripture and standards, but we will always choose between sinners, so no one's going to be perfect. So I'm just going to vote for who I think is best. That is one of the shallowest arguments that can be made in light of qualifications in Scripture. Consider that logic. You're basically saying... The requirements in Scripture don't actually mean anything. Because I could take that logic and look at two pastors, candidates for pastors, excuse me, men who are I'm voting on to be pastors. And I could have these two men before me, and I could say, well, neither one of these men meets the qualifications, but hey, everyone's a sinner. No one's perfect. I'm not voting on a perfect pastoral candidate. We don't live in an ideal world. So I'm going to pick one of these men, even though neither of them meets the qualifications. You could also say, well, everyone's a sinner, so I'm going to marry an unbeliever. We don't live in an ideal world. I really don't have many options right now. You might say, well, that's not the same, Chris. It is the same. If God has revealed how we are to vote, it's the same concept. If God has revealed how we are to choose a spouse, if God has revealed how we are to vote for pastors, if God has revealed how we are to vote for civil rulers, then we are not to circumvent those standards simply because there's no perfect person. That's an illogical argument against following God's standards in voting for civil rulers. Now, I need to address something which I'll address more later, and that's the silent holocaust of our day, abortion. You see, the Bible tells us that wicked men do not understand justice. That's the point I've made. There's a reason why we are required to elect men who fear God and love the truth. Those who do not fear God are wicked. They do not love Christ. They do not follow his law, and they cannot understand justice. Someone who fears God and loves righteousness, a man of courage and of truth, would oppose abortion with tooth and nail to the bitter end would oppose abortion to the bitter end. On the other hand, the Bible tells us to avoid people who do not love God. Avoid them, as we read in 2 Timothy 3. The number one priority of the civil government, when we talk about electing civil rulers, what are we electing them to do? The number one priority is to protect innocent life and punish evildoers according to God's law. Romans 13 First Peter, they are to punish evil and protect those who do good. That is number one. There really is no number two. That's the role of civil government. So when you have men who will take that role of civil magistrate, take the oath of office to preserve life and liberty, and then sign bills that say, after all these regulations have been met, you can then murder the child, such a person is unfit for office and is certainly not a man of courage who loves righteousness. He fails at, in his most basic duty. He is willing to compromise on his most fundamental job. He is willing to contravene the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. 
the Democratic and Republican Party has yet to produce a man of courage that will stand up on day one and say, abortion is murder, and I will issue an executive order to every state ordering the closure of every abortion mill in the land. I will ignore Roe v. Wade because it is immoral and unconstitutional to boot. As I said, President Trump likes to tout himself as the most pro-life president ever. Well, folks, that's not saying much. He supports child sacrifice under certain conditions, and he has told the voters, he has told us that he's not going to touch Roe versus Wade. He's told you that. These men are either cowards or simply really do not care and are just doing what is expected of them from a pro-life voter base that long ago abandoned the Lordship of Christ and the authority of God's word in the fight to end the Holocaust in our land. You know that the most serious opposition to laws that actually criminalize abortion are Republican pro-lifers? It is a charade for these people. They do not want to stand up and say abortion is murder and it must be ended. They'll play the political game. They'll court the vote. They'll say what they need to say. They'll dodge questions about their most fundamental duty to protect life. Now, if you are given two righteous choices in life, you have two, you're a Christian man considering marriage, you have two godly women, uh, you have uh, two pastors you're voting on, you have, if you have two righteous choices, you can then analyze and discuss and think about which of the two I should choose. But given two unrighteous choices, you are not free to do that. It's simple. Do not support evil. I will not support an executive who endorses the murder of children. That's both Biden and Trump. The same applies to any level. I've contacted a lot of these um, people running for office at the local level here in Delaware. None of them so far to a man are willing to call a spade a spade and stand up for truth. None of them will say abortion is murder and it needs to stop across the board. They're not men of courage. They don't fear God. They don't love the truth. And I will not vote for them because they are not qualified. It's quite simple. For principle two, if God gives us guidelines for selecting leaders, which he does in Exodus 18.21, then we are to follow his law and his guidelines no matter what. It is not my job to be a political bookie and figure out what's going to happen if I follow God's standards. That's not my job. That's principle one and two. Now, I've argued my case, and I think it's a simple case, of course, but there are two principles. God requires us to be faithful to his word, not worry about the result, and God has told us how we are to vote and where to follow that standard and not worry about the result. Now, let's make some application and answer some objections. You know, even men who are in effect... Unfortunately, trying to guilt trip Christians into voting for Trump. Admit the standard for voting is in God's word. Many of these men will admit that God has laid out a standard for voting in his word. They'll admit that. And then they'll capitulate out of fear of the future and out of this desire that good may come. And they'll fail to apply principle one, even though they admit to principle two. They'll say, yeah, God's given us a standard for voting, but in this case we need to you know, kind of bend that a little bit because of fear of what's going to happen if we don't elect Donald Trump. 
There are really three attempts people will make to justify supporting Trump, and it actually applies to supporting Biden. I'll show you that it's illogical either way. It really doesn't matter who. If you're, if you're going against God's word and you're claiming to be a Christian, these are the three attempts people will make to justify supporting Trump as a Christian. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list them, and then I'm going to go through them one by one. Number one, people will say there is a standard when it comes to voting, but we still must choose the lesser of two evils. And I'm going to show you the danger in that. Number two, that another thing uh, people will say in an attempt to justify supporting Trump is they'll say, hey, there's a standard in Scripture. Trump's qualified. Trump meets the, 18, the Exodus 18.21. Trump fears God. He loves the truth. He hates covetousness. He hates lies. He's qualified to be a civil ruler. That's the second way. The third way is, and unfortunately, surprisingly perhaps, this is one of the most common. There is not a standard. People will say there is no standard in Scripture regarding who to vote for. We don't have a standard for civil rulers. And we'll talk about the dangers of that. So all three of these are very concerning, but all three in different ways. So let's talk about number one. If you say there is a standard in Scripture, Exodus 18:21, Deuteronomy 1, here are the standards for voting for civil rulers, men who fear God, love the truth, hate lies. If you say there's a standard, but we're going to choose the lesser of two evils in this case. And I would argue that the fear of man is causing you to say one thing about God's word and then act in another way. And my charge and plea with you is that you need to be more afraid of the judgment of God than of the Democratic Party. You understand that the Democratic Party may very well be the judgment of God on our nation. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, and listen carefully to what he said. He said, there are in our times... Grave dangers confronting the church, and unless she is very careful, like Israel of old, she may enter political alliances to try to stave off the very thing which God has ordained. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that and applies so much to our day. We enter political alliances, we compromise in order to stave off, to avoid the judgment that God has ordained. When God brought, think about this, if you know your, your Bible, you know your Old Testament, when God brought judgment on his people via the Babylonians, right? Remember King Nebuchadnezzar coming to attack God's people. What did the people do? Where did they turn to? They turned to Egypt. They turned to Egypt. They did something they knew that they were not supposed to do. They knew they were not to rely on Egypt. God had told them very clearly, do not go back this way. Do not look to... Egypt. Do not look to princes, chariots. Do not look to foreign powers. Look to me and me alone. They knew they were not to turn to Egypt. But why did they turn to Egypt? Out of fear for what the Babylonians would do to them. Look, the Babylonians were not a nice group of people. One of the most violent, perhaps. They were not nice. And the Egyptians at that time were probably going to make things a little bit easier for the people. The Egyptians were probably going to be a little more friendly. They were going to help the Israelites out, the people of Judah, as they were looking to escape from the Babylonians. You know, from a humanistic standpoint, it makes sense. Babylonians, one of the most wicked, vile, atrocious groups. The Egyptians are being friendly to us. They'll allow us our religious liberty. They'll allow us this and that. It makes sense to flee to Egypt. The only problem with that, the only problem 
was that God had told them not to go to Egypt. Now, if God's word isn't relevant, if faithfulness to God is not the most important thing, then I can't really argue with someone who says, hey, run to Egypt to escape Babylon or run to Trump to escape Biden. You know what? I'll admit that the Democrats are not a nice group of people. And the Republicans may be a little bit nicer. They may be a little bit more tolerant to some things that we value. But that does not trump, and no pun intended there, that does not trump my duty to be faithful to God. Maybe there was a little pun intended there. That does not trump our our duty to be faithful to God. The Babylonians, compared to the Egyptians, yeah, I guess I'd rather have the Egyptians. But you know what? God didn't give me that option if I was living in Judah at the time. I didn't have the option of fleeing to Egypt. I have to face the consequences of what God has brought. You know what? Biden as a president, from my, from my limited uh, standpoint and what I see made happen over the next four years, yeah, Trump might be better from my perspective of what I think might happen, which I could be wrong. But God hasn't given me the option of fleeing to Trump to run from Biden. He hasn't given me that option. You know, Charles Spurgeon, and I do think his advice applies here, Charles Spurgeon said this, of two evils, choose neither. Now, one of the things that concerns me, and there are several things throughout this whole election process and four years ago and eight years ago, is that the lack of consistency in thought among professing Christians. There's one article where an author argues that Spurgeon's maxim of of two evils, choose neither. He says that doesn't apply to this election. He then, and the author implicitly supports Trump, says, you know, we should vote for Trump, and then he gives this incredible straw man against the position I'm, I'm essentially arguing for right now. The author of the article says this, imagine our two families are miles from land in a sinking boat. Suddenly, out of the mist come two boats to save us. One is captained by an adulterer. The other is captained by a thief. Which boat will you get into? You say, neither one. I'm waiting for the evangelical boat, which is captained by a devout Christian who will end abortion. I say, you're kidding, right? You reply, both of these guys are reprobates and I'm not going to choose between two evils. That's how this man paints the argument I'm making. And as far as caricatures go, this one takes the cake. It's such a straw man because God's law word does not require us to consider the moral standing of a marine rescuer. God's word does not require you to consider the moral standing of a marine rescuer. If someone coming on a boat, a ship's captain, there's no standard regarding choosing a rescuer when you're stranded in the ocean. God's word, however, does require you to consider the qualifications of a civil ruler. The arguments, made, the arguments made in favor of supporting Trump are pretty much always the same. Utilitarian hopefulness. Well, I hope this is going to bring about the most good. And so the author, after giving that straw man and saying, hey, if you, if, you won't vote, if, you'll choose, if you won't choose the lesser of two evils, that's like refusing to get on a ship. With two, totally irrelevant and a straw man to this position. And so the, the author ends his article by saying this. Is it possible that God, in his infinite wisdom has brought Trump along, if for no other reason than to prevent this nation from sinking permanently 
into the abyss of PC progressivism and that he has done this so that when this nation is back on the ground, we can then plan for the kind of constitutional conservatives that we need for the future? So he says, is is, is it possible that that God in his wisdom has brought Trump along in order to prevent the sinking of America so that we can get back to a place where we can then start to be, what he says, constitutionally conservative for the future? And then you know what he says? After he says that, at the very end of his article, he gives a straw man of, well, you would never not choose a rescuer because they're not qualified, so therefore you shouldn't worry about that when you're electing a, a ruler. You know what he says? Is it possible that God has brought Trump along to save the nation, essentially? You know what he says? I don't know. I don't know. Exactly. You don't know. None of us do. God could very well have brought Biden along for no other reason than to bring about a judgment that could bring us to the kind of biblical revival that we need for the future. That's why, folks, it's not our job to vote based on political prognostication on what might happen, on what God could do, on what God should do, on what we would do if we were God, on what we think God will do. That's not our job. Our job is to vote based on God's revealed law. It's very simple. It's become complicated because of the fear of the future. For some reason, we continue to think, and this is what's the insanity of this, we continue to think that abandoning God's law is going to somehow put us in a place where we can then follow God's law. You understand the insanity of that. It's one of the most foolish things we can do. As if running to Egypt, running to Egypt from Babylon, will cause God to say, all right, well, since you didn't follow my word, I guess I'll tell the Babylonians to go home, and you guys can have your future as, as you would like it. It's insanity to think that we can, can court the blessing of God by disobeying his word. It doesn't work. It doesn't even work. You know that this all this talk of, well, we, we, you know, we got to compromise here because we need the, the conservative judges and, and the Republicans are going to do a better job. of. You know that Roe versus Wade was decided on by a Supreme Court that was majority Republican-appointed judges. You know the Republican Party, led by Trump, continues to spend this nation into economic oblivion. It's smoke and mirrors that we're really getting somewhere by compromising and choosing the lesser of two evils. It's smoke and mirrors. The, Repub- the, the Supreme Court has for, for decades been ruled by, quote unquote, conservative justices. They're the ones who decided on Roe v. Wade. Of two evils, choose neither. Now, again, that applies here because since God has revealed for us how to vote, I will not choose a man that does not meet those qualifications. I don't care how much you try to scare me about what the Democrats will do in the future. I fear God more than I fear the Democrats. I don't care what you tell me Biden or Harris are going to do for this nation, to this nation. I didn't care what you said Hillary Clinton is going to do. I'm not going to vote based on fear of what man can do to me, my family, or the nation. I'm going to vote based on God's word and trust him that he knows the outcome better than anyone else can. And we'll get to the objection in a minute where you say, well, you must not care about babies then if you're going to not vote for Trump. I will talk about that and the foolishness of that objection. We are to fear God more than what the Democrats can do to our nation, and we are to follow 
his standard. So that's the first reason people will say we need to vote for Trump, because, yeah, they'll say, yeah, there's a standard, but we have to choose the lesser of two evils. That's asking God to bless us, to get us to a place where we can obey God's word by disobeying God's word. It's the height of folly. The second thing, the second way people will, the second way people will say, well, we should vote for Trump as Christians is to say, well, there's a standard in Scripture, and you know what? Trump is qualified. Now, this is concerning for a whole other reason. Here you have the case of a lessening of what the Bible clearly says in order to appease our consciences. I am convinced that no one can honestly argue that Donald Trump fears God, loves good, loves righteousness, hates covetousness, hates dishonesty. We read 2 Timothy 3 this morning. Paul gives this list of characteristics, including swollen with conceit, right, proud, loving, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. You know, Paul says, avoid such people. These are the characteristics that are the antithesis of what is required of civil rulers in Exodus 18.21. So you have these requirements in Exodus 18.21 on the one hand, the things are to avoid on the other. And then you'll take a man that is clearly not qualified and clearly exhibits the other traits and not only not avoid him, but vote to make him one of the most powerful men in the world. What are we doing? We are completely ignoring scripture. Men who are firm in the reformed faith, men who would never vote on a person like Donald Trump in this condition he's in as an unregenerate man to join their church as a Christian are quick to abandon their view of the new birth and what biblical conversion looks like, and what it means to have a new heart that loves the truth and loves Jesus. They're quick to abandon that and say, well, Trump's a baby Christian. Yeah, he's qualified. He's just a new Christian. We addressed the folly of that last week. Those who will say they love Jesus and yet don't obey his commands. Love for, love for Jesus is not something for more mature Christians. It's the very essence of being born again and loving Christ. And so we address that, and I hasten to move on because, quite frankly, there's absolutely no grounds to even consider someone a Christian who says he he doesn't ask for forgiveness. And folks, I, I don't mean to be rude, but I think you're allowing your desires and wishes for whatever you may think needs to happen for the future to delude your thinking regarding whether or not Donald Trump fears God and loves truth. And if you're one of those people, I plead with you to open your Bibles and consider what it says will happen when a man fears God. That's the second uh, reason people will say, well, we can support Trump as Christians because he is qualified. He meets those standards. And I think that's in error. Number three, the final reason that I have today why, why Christians would say, hey, we should support Trump is this. The Bible doesn't give us a standard for voting on civil rulers. In some ways, this is the most consistent, at least. But it's also, I believe, clearly a rejection of these texts, such as Exodus 18.21. And it also proves way too much, which I will show you. Basically, if you say the Bible doesn't give you a standard for voting, that's an admission then that we can vote for anyone we want, whether that's Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, or Adolf Hitler. And if you think that's uh, a crazy statement to make, I will show you why. Um, that is the logical conclusion of saying there's no standard in Scripture regarding who we vote for. So if there's no standard, let's talk about it. If there's no standard, if Exodus 18.21 is somehow not in the Bible or somehow doesn't apply to us, 
then there is nothing wrong with voting for Biden or Trump or whoever. You must be consistent. You must be consistent. If you can vote for someone who does not meet these qualifications in, in Exodus 18:21, then you are introducing some other qualifications into the picture. Now, your qualification might be, well, this person is closer to this standard I've set up that I think God requires people to vote on. Or I think this person is closer to achieving these ends that I think we need. My qualification might be, well, since God doesn't say in his word who I have to vote for, what their standards are, uh, my qualification might be, well, um, I'm going to vote for who I think will will lead to the most good in the long run for the most people, utilitarianism. I'm going to try to prognosticate and say, if I vote for this person, what's that going to lead to down the road? And that's going to be my standard for voting. Or it might be who I think can win. Who do I think can win re-election? You could introduce all these standards. And you know what? As I've alluded to, folks, I could make a fine case that a Biden presidency could lead to blessing. It could lead to the Republican Party reevaluating their cowardice, their compromise, their, com- their complacency. Or I could argue that a, a third party vote by millions and millions of people could cause a political transformation and the end of the two-party system, which, you know, is something that both Washington and Adams did not want, by the way. They did not want the two-party system. I could argue that not voting for either and voting for a third party will lead to the best results in long term. Anyone can make any number of these arguments, and no one can logically refute them because, you know what? None of us know the future. Only God does. Only God does. You know, Langdon in that sermon, he's speaking of two parties. He said, be always on your guard against parties and the methods taken to make interest for unworthy men and let distinguished merit always determine your vote. Always. I will vote based on the merit and the qualifications of the man. So whatever political prognostication, whatever divination, whatever you try to do to figure out the future, it really doesn't matter. Because if you can vote for Trump, someone who is okay with murdering babies under certain conditions... You have to accept that because of X, Y, or Z, because he'll lead to more blessing. He'll lead to more religious liberty or whatever, this or that. Uh, He'll lead to less this. And we'll talk about that in a minute. If you can vote for Trump based on on that standard, then I can vote for Biden, another person who's also okay with murdering babies. I can vote for Biden because of, well, I think in the future he's going to lead to, it's going to lead to this more. It's going to lead to the end of the Democratic Party, Republican Party. I can make all these arguments on what's going to happen in the future, and you could not logically refute them if there is no standard for how we are to vote in Scripture. You understand that if God has not revealed to us how we are to vote, then you dare not critique, at least logically you can't, you cannot critique anyone voting for Biden. For who are you to say that voting for Biden will not be used of God to lead to more long-term prosperity than voting for Trump? Now, look, I can already hear the objections. You could say, are you kidding me? Biden will lead to more babies being killed. Come on, you, you have to vote for Trump. You know, he, he does support the murder of some baby, babies, but at a much lower rate than Biden does. Listen to me carefully. You do not know that Biden will lead to more abortions than a Trump presidency over the next 20 years. You have no idea. Do you understand that? You understand that God could use a Biden presidency to bring about the judgment that finally leads this nation to repent and stop all abortions across the board? God could use a wave of persecution led by the Democrats 
to bring about the greatest revival since the Reformation. God could use the radical left, a radical left takeover, to purge the church of nominal Christians who compromise and finally cause Christians to wake up and stand on the truth. You understand that God could do that. From our human perspective, you have no basis to say it's more likely under Trump or under Biden. Now, that God could do that. Does that mean does that mean that I'm going to go against God's word and vote for Biden, an unqualified man, simply because I know that God could use him to bring America to a better place? Absolutely not. But according to the logic of some who say we choose based on what will bring about the best results, I could. I could vote for Biden because no one except God himself really knows the utilitarian outcome of this election. For when you say, well, Trump doesn't meet the qualifications, he supports baby murder in certain situations, he supports homosexual behavior, but God can use him to bring about good for our nation. You are saying the same thing that I could say in arguing for a vote for Biden. You understand that you must be consistent in your argument. If you deny this standard in scripture, you have no ground to make any argument for voting for anyone. As I said before, you know, I'm glad it's not my job to figure out what God, who God's going to use to bring about the blessing that I know he will bring to this world. Whether or not it happens to America in our lifetime, I don't know. It's my prayer that it does. But my job is simply to be faithful. Your job is to be faithful. And that means voting according to God's revealed law. Men who fear God, love truth, and will rule justly according to the fear of God, not the fear of man. You know, when you read uh, Deuteronomy, I believe, talks about that these people are to rule the fear of God. They are to not fear because the judgment belongs to God. We are to have men who will rule according to God's law, regardless of what people will think of them, because God is the one who owns the judgment. He's the one who has the standard for right and wrong. Trump and Biden are unqualified. This is an easy decision. I'm not voting for either. It's not even complicated. It's not complicated because they're not qualified. And I fear God more than I fear what can happen to this nation if candidate X or Y becomes president. Let me close with two more things. I want to answer an objection and then give a warning and then conclude. Here's an objection. This is common. I mean, it's, uh, it's not really even worth that much attention. If you vote for a qualified person, they, a qualified person, they're not going to win. Nothing will change. It's a wasted vote. Yeah, you have Trump and Biden. If you choose someone who's actually qualified and meets the requirements, you're wasting your vote. First of all, and I know this is hard for people think, who think that we can control our own destiny, it is irrelevant if things will change or not. Our job is faithfulness to God, not taking matters into our own hands. And let me stop there for a moment and say it's kind of funny that as someone who's post-millennial, a Christian reconstructionist, I kind of get accused sometimes, hopefully in a friendly way, I get accused by, by Christians of wanting to they say I want to make the kingdom you know, happen here on earth and I want to, I'm focused on this earth and ignoring the heavenly realities. And it's funny that those who, who, who say you know, we should be more focused on the spiritual realm and, and not on things on earth are among those who are voting against God's revealed word in order to try to bring about some good end on earth. And I'm here saying, look, it's not my job to go against God's word, and even though I'm trying to bring about good on earth. This type of election, this makes people think crazy things. So the idea that if you vote for someone, they're not going to win is completely irrelevant. 
Now, if I'm choosing between two qualified candidates, okay, fine. Because now I'm choosing between two righteous choices. I can choose the one who I think might have a better chance of winning. But if I have two unqualified men, I'm not going to pick one. I'm going to choose someone who's qualified. Second, to this objection that you waste your vote, you don't even know if things will change. It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know that if one-third of all professing Christians who, you know, I don't know what that number is now, maybe 70 million. And again, these are just professors of Christianity. But if even one-third of those people all voted for a Christian candidate, things would change. Things would change in this nation. So again, political prognostication, though, is not my job. It's not my job to figure out if this happens, then what? So you don't even know if, 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 yeah, maybe this person won't win now, but something could, it could be used to lead to something else. Again, not my job. I'm not going to vote based on what's going to happen. But following God's word, we know it can be, will lead to blessing one way or another. And thirdly, the whole idea that not voting for one of the two parties or not voting for people you think can win is wasting your vote, it's just simply wrong. It's your vote. It's your vote. You cannot vote. That's not a waste. If you choose not to vote because you have no qualified candidates, you have not wasted your vote. You've preserved it. You've respected your vote. You haven't thrown it away for an unqualified candidate. You know, John Quincy Adams said, always vote for principle, though you may vote alone. And if you do that, you may cherish the sweetest reflection that your vote is never lost. Your vote is never lost. I want to give a warning here. And this is something I've heard more than once. There are those who are, I believe, Christian men, leaders, who will sometimes implicitly, sometimes quite explicitly, blame, place the blame for what's going to happen if Biden is elected, the blame for millions of aborted babies on someone who did not vote for Trump. There are those Christian leaders who will say, if you do not vote for Trump, you are complicit in the murder of babies that will occur under a Biden-Harris presidency. Friends, I believe that's a very sinful thing for these Christian leaders to do. I, you, are not responsible for the sins of Biden or Trump. I am responsible for my actions. God has called me to vote for rulers according to his standard. That's what he's called me to do. If, God, if there are two candidates that are not qualified and I'm faithful to God and in God's providence, a wicked ruler is elected and leads to evil actions, that is not my responsibility. You know who's responsible for that? The wicked ruler. You know who's responsible for any policies enacted by Joe Biden when he becomes president? Joe Biden's responsible. And if we're going to argue anyone else is responsible... You could say the people that voted for him potentially, but you cannot say someone who didn't vote for someone is responsible for another party that didn't get elected. It's illogical. It's insane. It's guilt tripping of Christians that doesn't even make sense if you think about it. You see, people and these Christian leaders are trying to use the abortion card, the abortion thing to get votes for Trump. How does that make sense? How does voting for a man who supports the murder of babies under certain conditions namely Donald Trump, how in the world is that going to give me a clean conscience if you're trying to guilt trip me into voting for Trump so that we can save babies? It's insanity. And how in the world can anyone say that Christians who do not vote for Trump, a man who supports abortion 
under certain conditions are complicit in abortion. It's insanity. And it's one of the most illogical, foolish, and really ungodly arguments that can be made. And I'm sorry, I know I'm being frank, but it's true and I think it's very important because it's one of the most disturbing displays of inconsistent thinking among Christian leaders. Christian leaders are out there really using fear tactics to try to get Christians to vote for Trump. Say, if you don't vote for Trump, then you are complicit in the radical left's takeover of America and the murder of millions of babies. I've heard that more than once from leaders, from Christians who aren't leaders. I've heard it multiple times. If you don't vote for Trump, then you're, it's a vote for the radical left and the murder of children. That is a lie. It's a lie. It's a straight lie. Do we forget everything we read in the Bible when election season come around, comes around? Do we just ignore scripture? When pastors try to tell me that I'm complicit in abortion if I don't support a man who supports abortion, I feel like Jeremiah, who was accused of being complicit with the Babylonian takeover because he wouldn't compromise and run to, to Egypt. It's insanity. God never forces us to choose evil men to rule over us. Never. Having, you know, the whole no perfect candidate fallacy does not mean that you have to sin or choose an unqualified candidate. Your vote is yours and your vote does not belong to anyone else. You see, some professing Christians would like to tell you that if you vote third party or if you don't vote out of conscience, you're taking a vote away from Trump. That is absurd. You know, people on the left, right, say, well, like to think that uh, the government's entitled to your money, right? They have a right to take your money, right? And, and I mean, to be honest, the Republicans are, believe that the same way, the way they tax and, and spend the nation into oblivion. But you know what? A lot of Trump supporters think that they're entitled to your vote, as if your vote belongs to them and belongs to Trump. And if you don't vote for him, you're taking a vote away from him. I'm not taking a vote away from anyone. Trump does not own anybody's vote. I'm not going to vote for someone who will sign into law something that ends with, after all these regulations are in place, you can then kill the baby. I'm not going to vote for someone like that. I'm not going to vote for someone who does not fear God, someone who does not uphold the most basic premise of his office, protecting life. Therefore, I cannot vote for Trump and I cannot vote for Biden for the same reasons I couldn't vote for Romney. See, this has nothing to do with Trump. I'm not singling him out. We have failed to teach Christians who they are to vote for. And so we've been complicit in that sense in the, the continuation of this two-party compromise and voting for the lesser of two evils, which continues our nation down a path of abortion, immorality, and debt. Nothing has been done to end those things. Roe v. Wade was decided on by a Republican-appointed court. We've already addressed that. The greatest threat to America is not Joe Biden or the Democratic Party. It's not. The greatest threat to America is the judgment of God for compromising his word and failing to honor Jesus as Lord. The utilitarian compromise of the American church is that it is better to abandon God's law. This is the compromise. It's better to abandon God's law, they say, in order to attempt to achieve a good end than to simply obey God and leave the results to him. That's the compromise. It's a compromise from the pit of hell. It will not lead to blessing. God did, yeah, God really said this, but this. It's a compromise. And I have to be honest with you, as I have been, 
I'm way more concerned about the state of the American church and her failure to follow God's law than I am about the Democrats taking over this nation. Way more concerned. I expect the Democrats to promote evil. I expect the Republican Party to continue to be complicit in evil. They are not the salt of the earth, but Christians are. And since Christians are compromising, I'm concerned. I'm concerned about that. Can you trust that obeying God's word is better than trying something else? Can you trust that? Can we trust that as a church in America? We must not compromise. If there are no qualified men, then you don't vote. Better to not vote than vote against God's revealed standard. The kingdoms of this earth totter, but the Lord of hosts is with us. I am concerned about the future of this nation, just as much as any Christian. I abhor and lament the fact that we are shedding innocent blood by the millions, but folks, the solution to that is not to support a man who endorses murder of babies. It's really simple. The solution is to follow God's word and pray for revival and not compromise. I am concerned the solution, however, is to not compromise God's word. It's to stand on on God's word. I know that that, in the long run, will lead to blessing. In the long run, faithfulness to God is going to be infinitely better than any utilitarian compromise that we make in the face of danger. I understand the existential threat of the radical left is real. The the existential threat of the Babylonians coming towards Jerusalem to sack it, to destroy it, to plunder, to murder, to rape was real. It was real. It's real today. That doesn't mean we flee to Egypt. It doesn't mean we flee to Trump. It means we stand on God's word, whatever the consequences. And I fear the church has lost sight of this. And that's what concerns me. Far more than being concerned about a Biden-Harris presidency. My prayer is that God would be pleased to restore to us an unflinching commitment to faithfulness to his revealed word. In that election sermon in 1788, Langdon said that God provided everything necessary for his people's happiness and nothing was left to their own wisdom than to submit to his authority and adhere strictly to his commands. It's the same for us, folks. God has given us everything necessary for our happiness right here in his word. There's nothing left for us and our wisdom to try to figure out. Well, yes, God, you say this, but if we do this, it'll lead to blessings. And it's God has given us everything. There's nothing left for our wisdom other than to do this. Submit to his authority and adhere strictly to his commands. That will bring about blessing. To fail to do that will put us in a situation under which no nation under heaven can prosper. Going against God's word will not bring blessing. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have given us your word that has stood the test of time, that applies now as it did before and will ever apply as the only bedrock and foundation of truth, of righteousness, of justice. Lord, we ought to confess as a people that we have feared man and what man can do more than fearing you. And we ought to come to you humbly and ask you to bless our nation. We ask that you would help us to follow your word, no matter what we think will happen, to not fear man, to trust you that judgment belongs to you. If we will stick to your word, we will have peace 
of mind, peace of conscience, and we can rest securely knowing that you are a very present help in a time of trouble. We do not need to flee to Egypt, even though the Babylonians are coming. We can trust you that you have a plan. And if we are faithful, you will do all things for your good, for your glory, and our good. When we fail to be faithful, may we repent. And we thank you that you are a merciful God who ever looks after his own. We pray you would bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.